Hello everyone and welcome to this Archives of Disease and Childhood Fetal and Neonatal Edition uh, podcast. We are discussing the the, uh, the July uh, print edition of the journal and uh, having a, a chat through the, the phantoms. I have with me uh, Ben Stenson from the, the Simpson uh, Neonatal Unit in, in Edinburgh. If you'd like to say hello, Ben. Hello, Jonathan. Um, and my name is Jonathan Davis, and I'm a neonatologist in Perth, in Western Australia. So the the, the phantoms this uh, month, Ben. There was a lot about um, a lot about stuff that happens before birth, a lot about stuff that happens around the time of birth, and a lot about uh, health uh, equity. So the the, the first um, the, the first paper I think that drew my attention was the the network analysis of surfactant uh, de- delivery and thresholds for that and there's an associated uh, editorial uh, so that for network papers by Eva Brannigan and colleagues uh, in in Dublin I believe out of the Coombe um, and then David Sweet has written a a, a very nice almost historical uh, editorial and future directions editorial about when to treat with surfactant. And it always amazes me that we're still having this discussion about when to treat with surfactant um, and seemingly not really any closer to getting an answer. Well, it's been an interesting story if you've been around during a lot of it. Um, And um, both the... uh, authors of the network meta-analysis and David Sweet are trying to make the sense of a complex literature. And um, I remember I first gave surfactant in one of the early uh, trials uh, back in 1990. And at that stage, we were giving it as rescue treatment to infants with really severe RDS. And the clinical change that it brought about was so amazing that it just felt like a new dawn had arrived. And um, we've been through this journey of recognising that the earlier we rescue infants with established RDS with um, surfactant, the um, the better their response is and the smoother their clinical course and that led us to intervene earlier and earlier and then eventually to give prophylactic surfactant. But of course, once you get that far, you're giving it to a bunch of infants, many of whom would never have got RDS and who may not benefit. And so then we've moved into the area of supporting babies non-invasively first rather than electively intubating them for surfactant and shown benefit to that. And so we're now on the journey of working out when we should go back in again. It's almost like the pendulum swinging back and forwards. And of course, we've now got this array of different, less invasive techniques for giving surfactant. But ultimately, we're gravitating towards the least invasive versions of these and we'll face this dilemma again. Should we get in before it starts or should we have some particular threshold? And one of my frustrations as, as someone who's been involved in clinical trials is when you try and set up a trial of something like this, loads of the people you survey about their potential willingness to participate uh, have quite narrow parameters on what thresholds they're willing to tolerate because of what they believe in their own experience 
and reading is an already established threshold that you can't go beyond. So it is actually quite difficult doing the studies that we need. Yeah, um, and I think you probably have uh, declared yourself, I think in the last sentence of your, the, the, the phantoms in that particular section is we, we must not be a barrier to recruitment to such trials. Uh, and, and I think we have to recognise that um, we have to separate our our own bias from of the fact that we we don't know and embrace the the, the uncertainty, and, and I mean this question has a, a so many sort of nuanced facets to it. Um, I mean, there is I particularly liked in in David's. Um, editorial there is discussion of sort of insure uh, and he nicely um separated out the word insure to sort of not only focus on the intubates or factin but the what often people forget is the e bit is the extubate to cpap uh, and then sort of talked about sort of intubation and um the various non-invasive methods and it's teasing out the fact that there's instrumenting the the oropharynx and then there's giving surfactant and those two are in many ways that, that it used to be that you had to do one with the other and now we're teasing out though the fact that those are two perhaps different different things and as well within that we have you know a number of other trials that are that are continuing so there's the and obviously with the word surfactant you've got you know the surfing analogy is is comes to the fore and, and you've got the surf on trial which is through um uh lma and that's uh, happening in melbourne at the minute and the surfs up trial um which is uh the the older babies uh sort of the 30 the, the late moderate uh, preterm babies that are getting do they need or not need surfactant and does that improve their their clinical uh outcome um so it's just the other way around Jonathan. is it the other way around? i knew i would get it wrong i so it's the other yeah surfs up is the lma one and surf on is the surfactant or not well apologies everyone i, I will make sure i get it right when I uh, put the put the links at the end of the uh, at the end of the podcast, but uh, I've noted that um, that the, the, this discussion there are so many sort of uh, colours that we can sort of start looking at this about when is the right time, when's not the right time, and who should be getting and who shouldn't be getting surfactant. That I, I think when I had just was finishing my training, I thought this story was nearly wrapping itself up, but it, it seems almost as, as complicated as, as it ever has been. And there's much more research that is required um, to, to tease out when is the right time to do it. And that, as you say, the pendulum seems to swing from, from one direction to another. Yeah, I agree. And um, of course, the, the differences in outcome between groups are getting smaller and smaller with the gradual refinements in treatment. So the sample sizes get larger and larger and um, then priorities move on to different things. So it's complicated, but we definitely have a little more to learn about thresholds for, for less invasive techniques. Absolutely. Um, and um, I mean, people still give uh, surfactant via ET tubes and Yes, these these things often come round in 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 circles, and um, so um, less invasive 
endocrine cube tube, and, and I even believe that um, Colin O'Donnell had uh, revised the giving it orally and seeing if how much got down. So I think there is a, a fertile field of, of surfactant research uh, to, to happen in the future. I agree. So, so the next set of, of, of papers that uh, are worthy of discussion and really fall under the theme of health equity in, in, in NICU care. Um, and I think there are uh, three or four uh, studies looking at the experience of, of Asian mothers um, in uh, pasteurised donor breast milk and uh, eye drops in Maori, non-Maori populations and, and, and carnicterous. Um, I think... NICU studies are now uh, acknowledging much more the fact that different populations do respond in different ways um, and perhaps a one-size-fits-all model of neonatal care um, is is no longer appropriate to try and perhaps our care needs to be a bit more individualised. Would would you agree with that? Yes, uh, to a certain extent, although the theme across all of these papers also to me is the uncomfortable truth that the quality of care delivered varies between different groups and that there are structural, social and institutional and individual contributors to all of that. And it's really important for us all to be confronted with this information so that we can try as hard as we can to adjust our actions and policies accordingly. The one that that drew my attention particularly was um, the 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 connectorous um, sort of shorter report, which um, really was a sort of a slightly terrifying read that perhaps they were underserving um, so these populations um, in in certain ethnic minorities where p- perhaps the recognition um, and um, uh, of things like jaundice, or or even as as I'm, I'm sure has been has been noted in other studies, sort of pulse oximetry and what have you in 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 skin tones that perhaps um, uh, the technology was not tested in. So it's um, I think that you're you're absolutely right, and it's it's providing that same standard and quality of care, um, but ensuring that each population is served uh, sort of in an, in an adequate way to, to make sure that the outcomes are, are targeted for that, um, the, the particular problems that, that that population might face. Yeah, it um, is terrifying that people might rely on visual assessment to assess jaundice in babies um, with pigmented skin. And uh, when there are non-invasive devices that overcome uh, the the challenge and um, yeah their their implementation isn't as widespread as you would think no no absolutely so something that we should um, definitely be uh, more mindful of and depending on the diversity of our populations the next sort of section is the um, the report of the the precept program, uh, which was a large network of QI programs uh, to ensure magnesium sulfate, um, obviously neuroprotective agent in, in preterms and in other populations, uh, was given. Um, and this seems to be a fairly 
positive uh, report um, of that, that that study by Hannah Edwards and colleagues um, have reported on this in uh, 137 maternity units in England. So um, this is a good QI um, project to, to bring delivery of magnesium sulfate up to standard and essentially give a quite a cheap drug to um, improve uh, sort of outcomes of a quite a vulnerable population. Yeah, well, in evidence-based medicine, getting the evidence is only the first part of the journey, isn't it? Because achieving the reach you need with that evidence to influence practice and then making the practice consistent enough that it's delivered by everyone historically, even with remarkably effective interventions, has been a long journey. And so establishing a machinery for making that more efficient across large numbers of organisations has got to be a good thing. Absolutely. And uh, this is a good uh, sort of, they share, I believe they share the toolkits and materials, which other uh, national programs may find interesting to um, to implement across sort of other sort of healthcare environments and, and certainly um, focus on a fairly straightforward and, and cheap uh, and economically uh, effective uh, therapy. Yeah, and we can use the same approach for more efficient rollout of future incremental steps in the evidence base. Absolutely. Um, it can go beyond magnesium sulfate and, um, and perinatal uh, practice. And Ben, we have a, another uh, study that perhaps reinforces the um, the need for proper occupancy and uh, nursing staff ratios. This is from is a retrospective study from uh, Canada. Yes, so this is from four level three NICUs in Canada from 2015 to 2018. And they looked at the association of nurse staffing and uh, neonatal unit occupancy with the outcomes of their babies and um, showed that having a higher nurse provision ratio, more nurses per baby, was associated with lower odds of mortality and morbidities for the babies. And that at times when unit occupancy was high, the risks of mortality and morbidity were high or higher, although a substantial part of that was mediated through the effect of that high occupancy on uh, nurse staffing ratios. So there's quite a number of studies published on this theme over the recent years. Uh, this is consistent with them and shows what an important issue this is for all of us. In the UK, we're fortunate the British Association of Perinatal Medicine has um, grown in influence and um, their recommendations for nurse uh, staffing provision of uh, one-to-one nursing for level one intensive care, two-to-one for high dependency and four-to-one for special care has a lot of traction. We, we have a lot of difficulty meeting those standards, but the availability of those standards to us um, serves us well in discussions with um, managers uh, over um, resource. And so 
think that um, this kind of data continues to be really important in all areas um, where neonatal intensive care is being provided. Uh, absolutely. And um, I think it makes a lot of common sense that, you know, the more skilled nursing staff looking after babies and more dedicated looking after individual babies, um, you will reduce the mortality and morbidity. Um, and I do wonder whether other organizations around the world do have similar advocacy groups. And it'll be interesting to hear from people if if they did. And Ben, we, um, you know, we've talked about surfactant and uh, long term outcomes um, with magnesium sulfate uh, and really on to the other sort of big group of babies that we've often discussed on the podcast is um, those with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And this is a, a an interesting, if not historical, um, study um, from Elizabeth Sewell and colleagues from the NICHD that looked at uh, discharge anti-seizure medications um, uh, between 2000 and 2014 and surprising the numbers of babies and the variation in practice um, of of babies that received uh, ongoing seizure medication uh, uh, following discharge? Yes, so these children were treated in the NICHD network trials of therapeutic hypothermia that took place between 2000 and 2014. So the data are not that new, but they've provided an analysis of the proportion of infants in those trials who were treated with anti-seizure medicines, where the seizure medicines were continued at discharge, but also the association between continuing seizure medications at discharge and uh, later morbidity. And amazingly, um, in those trials, the variation between centre in the number of kids who were treated with seizures who then were still on those seizure medications at discharge varied between 13% at the lowest and 100% at the highest, which is clearly much too big a variation to be attributable to individual infant seizure patterns. It must be a lot, lot more to do with clinician habits. And the uncomfortable thing there is that we, whilst we recognise that seizures themselves are potentially neurotoxic, the seizures in HIE are usually relatively self-limited and anti-seizure medication is also recognised to be potentially neurotoxic. So it's really important for us to learn as much as we can about which seizures benefit from treatment and for how long, and also about the harms of, if there are any, of over-treatment. And I guess this just gives us a measure of the potential variation in practice and therefore um, the scope for further research. Yeah, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. And um, it, it's it probably is telling you that uh, there may be a discrepancy in the, the the management from even a neonatology and neurology uh, point of view and what we're actually treating. And, you know, the, the again, the striking thing in this study, and it's always hard to know with studies like this, what, what are we looking at? Is it chicken or egg? The, the risk of death and moderate to severe disability was 
greater in those infants that had anti-seizure medication at discharge. Um, but that's not necessarily saying that uh, those babies were sicker or that they had been given medication, but it might be a combination of the two. And, and certainly phenobarbitone, I think, was first used in the late 19th century and, and nothing really has uh, shown to be better um, from a stopping seizure point of view. However, we still know that it is neurotoxic, as are all the other uh, agents that are used. So, And seizures just are very emotive phenomena, aren't they? They distress the people who witness them. They give rise to a very strong compulsion to treat them. And that makes it very hard for people to have the equipoise to study different approaches to treatment that go beyond their established clinical habits. Yeah, or or in fact, don't want to mention where I've did my training and what what people do where, but but certainly, you know, not treating seizures is, is another option that, that that would have to be considered because are seizures a, um, a a consequence of a sick brain that are going to happen anyway, and you're you know, and uh, is there actually any benefit to 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 doing? nothing as opposed to doing something. So I think there's a number of, I think I'm not even sure I know what the right question is, let alone what the right answer is in this in this circumstance. Uh, and there's a, a a bit to be unpicked. I mean, this data is 2000 to 2014. So this is when cooling was coming online, the studies are being done and then being introduced. So it certainly would be interesting to see what people are doing currently, or whether that has even changed at all, or, or what well, agents people are using. It. I think that um, continuing seizure medications at discharge is probably pretty unusual now, but thresholds for treatment of seizures and and the number of agents used to treat them is still really very variable. And it, it, it seems pretty clear that certain seizures and very high seizure burdens are harmful, but uh, where we cross over to the point where the treatment may be more harmful than the condition, we've we've still got very little idea. Couldn't agree more. Uh, so Ben, thank you very much for the, the conversation. The Phantoms is quite targeted this, this uh, month, um, but still nonetheless, quite a lot to, to unpack. We will be back with a discussion of September fairly soon uh, and hopefully uh, an author uh, podcast uh, in the pipeline uh, as well. Um, You can get the podcasts uh, from uh, a link on the archives website uh, as well as from where you normally get your podcasts, Apple, uh, Google platforms, but it's all linked on the webpage. If you want to have a discussion or get in contact at ADC underscore FN uh, on Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it. Um, You can get in contact with me at uh, Jonathan underscore Davis three or the main ADC handle, which is at ADC underscore BMJ or Ben's handle is at Stenson Ben. So uh, thank you everyone for listening and um, We'll put all the links for what we've been discussing below the the podcast and hopefully uh, we'll hear from you soon. Thank you very much.